Take your Bibles, please, and open them to the book of Genesis, chapter 1. Uh, we're looking at In the Beginning God this week, uh, Genesis chapter 1. We're going to cover uh, verses 14 through 25 this morning. So find that text of Scripture on your phone, your device, in your Bible, whatever you have, and please follow along as I read Genesis chapter 1, verses 14 through 25. And God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night, and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and for years, and let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, and it was so. And God made two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, to rule over the day and over the night and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the fourth day. And God said, let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarm according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kinds. And God saw that it was good. And God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful, and multiply, and fill the waters in the seas, and let the birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening, and there was morning, the fifth day. And God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things, and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds, and the livestock according to their kinds, and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind, and God saw that it was good. Heavenly Father, thank you for this text of Scripture this morning. Thank you for its truth and all that it means and represents to us today. Thank you for the realities that are underneath and in and through all of this Lord, that should affect our, our thinking and our living. We've just sang some wonderful truths. Now we have the opportunity to study great truth as well. Uh, Heavenly Father, you know uh, my weakness. You know my imperfection. But Lord, I am thankful that your perfect word and your perfect spirit can make perfect, perfect application uh, to your people today. So I pray that you would superintend over my weakness and that your word would be powerful, clear, convicting, and life-changing uh, to each one who is here today. Uh, we thank you for all of these things in Christ's name. Amen. We're looking at the creation of the world, and this is the second time that we'll be using that title. And just to remind you, because I do think it's, it's helpful to hear these things repeated, and it helps you get the context of the book of Genesis. I won't walk through every single thing, but quickly reviewing what Genesis is. Genesis, the first book of the Bible, the very word, the very title Genesis comes from that first word that means beginnings. Moses is the author of this inspired scripture. It's a unique history. It's a unique history of the very beginning of our created world. Uh, but it's not just history. It is divinely recorded truth. It is history and theology. It is all about God. It is all about his plan and what he has done. It is about his redeeming work. 
We see the cycle of God's gracious creation, giving everything that his, created, his creation needs, and then mankind making mistakes, messing up, but God promising to redeem and to fix what sin has broken. Uh, there's an outline there for you that you can see for the entire book. This week, we're only going to take the time to look at the first two chapters, the creation of the world, but you see how the rest of the chapters uh, kind of fall out there, and it's a neat way uh, to kind of divide up uh, the book of Genesis. I wonder when you look at that first slide there, excuse me, that first uh, subdivision, the creation of the world, I wonder if you're thinking, you know, the creation of the world doesn't seem like the best choice of words. Why didn't you say the, the creation of the universe? Well, I was very intentional in choosing that word, the creation of the world, and you're going to see that today because I believe that that best reflects what the author of Scripture is going for as well. What God is revealing in Genesis 1 and 2 is shockingly geocentric. It's shockingly focused on the earth and the world in which we live. God's revelation of his creative acts focus in primarily on earth and specifically on mankind as the pinnacle of his creation. And we'll be talking about that more also. As we get started today, I want you to know or be reminded that bigger does not always equal better. Bigger does not always equal better. Now, I know that's a tough reminder on the 4th of July, right? Especially now that we can legally blow things up in this state, amen? But bigger does not always equal better. There are certain things where, where we certainly think that way. We want the biggest scoop of ice cream. We want the biggest piece of dessert. We want to see the biggest fireworks. I was talking to a man from our church, and, and uh, somebody in his neighborhood had purchased several fireworks and told the neighborhood, hey, we're going to be lighting these off. You know, come on out and watch. And so this guy, at his own expense, had purchased several fireworks. He's out there lighting them off, and some were big, some were smaller, and kids had come out to watch. And if they didn't think that the firework was big enough, they would boo him. I mean, this guy is trying to put on a show for the neighborhood, and depending on what they thought, the kids were like, yay, boo. It's like, wow, tough crowd. Bigger is not always better. Uh, my son is not in here this morning. He went out with the youth group. Uh, but my son is tall. My son is taller than me. And uh, as some of you fathers have maybe had this experience, as he started to get a little bit uh, taller than me, he'd kind of stand next to me sometime. He's kind of measuring himself up as he crept past me. And uh, I told him one time, I said, buddy, I can teach you a physics lesson really fast about uh, how height is not all there is to being able to stand your ground, okay? Um, but my son is taller than me now. But my son is not tall compared to a building, or compared to a skyscraper. This is a picture of my son and I, and we are in Chicago, and that's just outside the, the John Hancock building, which we ended up going up in. In the second picture, uh, you can see the, the Sears Tower or the Willis Tower off in the distance. Uh, this is actually a great idea that my wife had. Um, if you have high school kids, you know that it just seems that life gets busier and busier for them. And my wife very wisely came up with an idea. She said, you know, I think it would be really cool if we tried to make a memory with each of our children uh, when they turn 16. 
And my son turned 16 in February, and what he really wanted to do, his dream destination, uh, was he wanted us to go watch a Cubs game at Wrigley Field. Amen. Amen. Might get emotional up here for a moment. And uh, so obviously we couldn't go in February, and uh, we waited, and this was between, he had a very short gap between school ending and coming up here to work at camp, and we went to Chicago for a couple of days. Uh, if, if you follow baseball at all, you know this, the Tampa Bay Rays were in town, and they've got like the best record in baseball, uh, at the time they did. And I, I was on my knees before the Lord, oh Lord, just... Just one win. We've got two games. Just give us one win. And uh, we did. We got to see the Cubs win over the Tampa Bay Rays. It was great. We got to see Kyle Hendricks pitch, uh, who is the only, he's the only player left other than David Ross from the 2016 team when they won the World Series. Uh, but anyway, we went to Chicago, and one of the things we did was we went up in this very, very tall building. Okay, so my son is tall. My son is big, but, but it's nothing. His, his height is nothing compared to a building. And I've already told you a little bit, but I, I would love to sit down and, and just tell you more about what I got to do with my son on that trip. Uh, Giordano's Pizza and, and riding the L and walking around and seeing the bean and going down to Lake Michigan and, and all of those things. And if I sat down to tell you about the trip, do you think I would talk to you more about my son and the memories we made or about the John Hancock building? I hope it's obvious to you this morning that it would be about my son. Now, why in the world would I talk about him? He is nowhere near as big as that building. Well, the illustration should be obvious this morning. Bigger is not what makes it better. My relationship with my son is much deeper, much more profound, much more connected than my connection to any building. I don't care how big it is. It's not about mass, it's not about size, it's about relationship. And this is true of God as well. The Genesis account of creation is making a very, very clear point for us. God is communicating in his creation what his creative focus is. And as we read the text this morning, I hope you picked up on it. We're going to highlight it. God's creative focus is very geocentric. It's very earth-focused. And again, before we can accuse God of, of being unscientific in some way, I want you to understand we, we do this all of the time. We do this all of the time. I've got another picture for you. I want you to tell me what that is. You got a 50-50 shot here, folks. Somebody just hollered out. That is a sunrise. That is a sunrise. Wow, you absolute Neanderthals. I cannot believe you would call that beautiful rotation of the earth a, a sunrise. Sunrise, sunset. We talk that way all of the time, right? Oh, did you see the full moon the other night coming over Clear Lake? Wasn't it beautiful? I wonder where the rest of the moon goes when we can only see part of it. All of the time as we look at creation, as we see things, we know and we understand scientifically that the earth is rotating, the sun is coming up, and we, I just did it right there. The earth is rotating, and the sun is coming into our view, but we call that a sunrise, we call that a sunset, we call it the, the full moon or the half moon or whatever. 
That is us speaking in a geocentric way. That is us speaking according to the way we see things because we have naturally put ourselves at the center of the universe. But what is absolutely mind-blowing today is that the simplicity of this text shows us what we now know is scientifically beyond all comprehension. The simplicity of creation in this text is just the surface of what we now see is beyond our wildest understanding. And yet God in his word is revealing something that is even more profound. God in his word is telling us something about the universe he created. So again, big idea, same as yesterday. The created world reveals the creator God. The created world reveals the creator God. Our study of cosmology, our study of the origins of our world, reveal the incredible power, simplicity, and beauty, and order of the God who made us. It shows us who he is. It teaches us about him. Again, I'm going to repeat some of these texts over and over, and I hope they stick with you when you go home. Isaiah 45, 18 says, for thus says the Lord who created the heavens, he is God who formed the earth and made it. He established it. He did not create it empty. He formed it to be inhabited. I am the Lord and there is no other. That's a wonderful verse that connects both God's creative work to his very existence, to his very essence of who he is. So we're seeing this week God's, God's forming work, and God's filling work. God formed the earth, and then he filled the earth. And that's what we're taking time to look at these first few days. Days one through three, God was forming the heavens and the earth, and now day, days four through six, we begin to study how he fills the earth. So let's look at that first point there this morning in your notes, God's filling work. God's filling work. Verses 14 and 15. And God said, let there be lights in the expanse of heaven to separate the day from the night and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and for years and let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth and it was so. What God had formed, he is now going to fill. If you look back, you'll see God had already separated the day and night, right? God had already separated the light from the darkness. And what he had already formed, day and night, light and dark, he is now filling with the celestial bodies that we recognize as our sun, moon, and stars. I want you to look at this creation picture, and, and I apologize that it looks a little bit cartoony, but I don't know if you've ever noticed this before. The creation account is a parallel. The first three days of forming, you have the heavens, you have the water, and you have the earth, and then day four, five, and six directly parallel God's filling of those three days of forming. This is really a great way to remember and think about how creation unfolded. And, and, and I, as I looked for a graphic for this, as I looked for a picture, everything I found was in the, was in the kids' books or the kids' you know, slides. And I'm going, man, adults need to be reminded of this stuff too. So look at that picture, and that is a great way to understand how God's creation unfolds through his forming and his filling on those parallel days. One to three, two to four, five to six. But right at the very beginning, 
we start to see what God is doing. He makes sources for light that already exists. On day four, God makes sources for light that already exists. And I want you to look carefully at verses 14 and 15 and tell me what is the purpose of those sources of light? What is the purpose? Do you see it there? Let them be for signs and seasons. Let them give light on the earth. Make a note of this and hold on to it, folks, because what you see is that the purpose of what God is creating and filling the heavens with revolve around, no pun intended, revolve around the earth. Look at verse 16. And God made two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars also. Again, we cannot accuse God of being unscientific. He is speaking of creation from the perspective of man on earth. We do have a term for this. It's called phenomenological language. And yes, I did have to rehearse that many times, hoping that I would nail it up here, and I just did. Yes. <laughs> phenomenological language. We are looking at the universe. We're looking at what we see from the perspective of where we are on earth. Now, we're going to come back to this verse, but let's keep going for just a moment. Day 4, verses 17 through 19. Let your eyes run down those verses again. I won't reread them. They are a long description of all of the events of day 4. A longer description of creative activity than we have had before. And I want you again to note the focus. Note the focus. What is placed in the expanse of the heavens is to give light on the earth. It is to give light to the earth. God approves of what he has made, and we move into verse 20. Verse 20 says, And God said, Let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures and let birds fly above the earth and across the expanse of the heavens. So now we're moving into God filling on day five what he had formed uh, on day two. And so we'll put that picture up there. We see these water animals, these living creatures, all of them totally in abundance. Which, by the way, we're not going to go into this long term, but, but uh, if you remember your science classes or if you remember uh, the theory of evolution and how things evolve from one stage to another, uh, God putting the land an or excuse me, God putting the water animals and the birds on the same day really flies in the face of all that, okay? Really flies in the face uh, of what some have claimed has happened. Verse 21, again, God is creating these great sea creatures. This is significant, the word that he used. It is significant, again, just as we looked at yesterday, that he creates them according to their kind. God approves again. In verse 22 and 23, I want you to notice something unique. And now God blesses these creatures. God blesses these creatures, and he gives them a command. He tells them to be fruitful and to multiply. He tells them to fill the waters, fill the air. 
God enables them to reproduce and commands them to do so. What I want you to notice is that there is an escalating involvement. There is an escalating order to God's creation, and he is focusing in more and more. He's being more and more interactive with what he is creating. That which he is filling his creation with is receiving more of his time, more of his creative attention. When I say more of his time, what I mean is we're getting more time in the text. More time in the text is taken to explain what God is doing. But what he is filling the earth with is receiving his interaction, his commands, his attention. There is an escalating level of involvement in God's creative efforts. This is important to know as we'll be moving forward in this text as well. And so God is filling with these animals. Now, I'll make a note here because if you remember, all the way back on day three, that's when the earth began to produce vegetation, right? And we do now know, we do understand that uh, plants are living things. We, we categorize them as living things. Uh, no plant that I'm ever put in charge of is a living thing for very long, but we do understand that scientifically plants are living things. Now, the ancients would not have thought in that same category. They would not have thought of plants in the same way as any other kind of animal. And I think that's understandable for us uh, because we do the same thing. Before we had to come up here to camp, uh, since I knew we'd be gone for the majority of the week, I needed to mow the lawn. So I went out and I mowed the lawn. I did not go out and decapitate the grass, right? We don't talk that way. Uh, when, we, when we need to cut down a tree or when we need some firewood or something like that, we go, hey, I'm going to go cut a tree down. Uh, we don't go out and slaughter a tree. Uh, that's just not the way we talk. We spray weeds. We don't poison them with noxious fumes, right? We even understand that while the creation of plants is living, even we understand that there's a difference between these living things such as the birds uh, and the fish that God has made. And all of this is pointing forward, it's moving forward to day six, this climactic day that we see now in verse 24. Day six, more space, more attention, and more detail is given to this creation day than anything that has preceded it. There is more divine interaction. You're going to see that there is more divine approval and it seems appropriate to say this since it's the 4th of July, the sixth, sixth day is really God's grand finale. He creates these cattle, these critters, these creeping things, all of them that reproduce according to their kind, and they are good. I want you to look at verse 26. We haven't read this yet. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heaven and over the livestock and over all of the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Well, I'm sorry, but it's cliffhanger time now. Uh, we're not going to dive into that. We're going to talk about that tomorrow uh, and the next day after that. But we're going to stop right there looking at God's filling work. And now I want you to see the second point that we want to lean into today, God's creative focus. God's creative focus. Point number two, God's creative focus. I want you to go back to verse 16. Look at this again with me. And God made two great lights. 
You see that? God made two great lights. The greater light to rule the day. Which light is that, class? Very good. And the lesser light to rule the night. Which class is that? Or which class? <laughs> what is that? The moon. Okay, now right away, you should be thinking about something. Is our sun really that great? Look at this picture up here. That tiny little dot in the upper left corner represents the sun in comparison to some of the other stars. You've got Pollux, you've got Sirius, Regal, and Betelgeuse. And that's the comparative relationship to what they have determined are some of the stars. But when we look up in the sky, what do we see? What do we, what do we know as the greater light of our day? It's our sun. What about our moon? What about this, this lesser light that rules the night? It's not even a light, right? Did anybody see the, the moon coming up on, on Sunday night over the water? Man, alive. It just looked absolutely huge. It has no light of its own. What is the moon doing? It's reflecting the light of the sun. And there are nights like this where you go, boy, the moon just looks brilliant. The moon just looks bright. And we know it's not. It's just a cold, dead rock reflecting the light of the sun. So why does God speak this way in his word? Because of his creative focus. His creative focus is on earth. His creative focus is on the place that he has made for the pinnacle of his creation, mankind. Do you guys notice anything else about verse 16? Look at the very last phrase of verse 16. And the stars. And the stars. Like, like it's this tack on. Like it's this... Oh man, I had to really work hard on the sun and I had to really work hard on the moon and I'll just, throw, I'll just throw some stars out there as well. I told you at the beginning, I, I am not, I'm not a creation scientist. Anything that I'm sharing with you this morning is just in my study, smarter people than me, books that I've been reading that just have, this has just fascinated me and you can find all of this information for yourself as well. I want you to think about what it means that and the stars is tacked on to the end of verse 16. Now, God in his inspiration made it almost a moot point in the text, and I'm going to take time to actually unpack it a little more because I think we need to understand the mootness of the point, all right? The speed of light, which you all know is 186,000 miles per second, right? Slightly faster than you drove here on Saturday. 186,000 miles per second, just in case you didn't hear that. At this speed, you would be able to circle the earth seven times in one second. Seven times in one second. You would pass our moon in two seconds. You would pass Mars in four minutes. And Pluto, whatever the poor guy is, uh, in five hours, you would drive by him. So flying at the speed of light... 186,000 miles per second, in 4.3 years, you would finally reach our nearest star. The next star in our galaxy is 4.3 light years away. 
If you simply wanted to cross our galaxy, our Milky Way galaxy, it would take you 100,000 years traveling at the speed of light. 100,000 years just to, get our, just to get across our neck of the woods, okay? And traveling at that same speed, it would take you 2 million years to reach the next galaxy. Folks, remember this. I said this yesterday. The universe is not a zip code for us to live in. The universe is a portrait of our great creator. And it is saying something about him. This was so encouraging and mind-boggling to study. I don't know if any of you have ever heard of a pastor by the name of Louis Giglio, but there are two videos online that you can watch. I encourage you to write these down. Louis Giglio has a, a video you can find on YouTube. Watch it for free. It's called Indescribable. Louis Giglio, that's G-I-G-L-I-O, G-I-G-L-I-O. He has a movie called Indescribable and another one called How Great Is Our God. Indescribable is, is my favorite, but I like them both. And uh, if you really want to watch something, I'd encourage you to sit down and watch those. It's absolutely baffling uh, to be reminded of the greatness of our universe. And if you ever go to the Creation Museum in Kentucky, uh, dads cough up, spend the extra money, and go into the planetarium, okay? Uh, get an understanding of the size of our universe uh, from a biblical perspective. It's so wonderful. So this is our universe, and as we send more and more sophisticated telescopes out there, what we find out is that our universe is expanding. Our universe is expanding because of something called dark energy. No, that's not a Marvel thing. That's actually a scientific thing. They call it dark energy because they don't know what it is. They can't figure out what it is. So apparently they have to use that term, and they also have to use the term dark matter, because they don't know what it is, for what holds the atom together. They don't know how that works. This is, not, this is not fake, okay? This is not just Ant-Man stuff I'm talking about this morning. Uh, this is real. This is scientific. We go from the greatness of our universe. I want to talk to you for a moment about the atom, this, the precision and the creation of an atom. We thought we were getting really small when we start talking about an atom, but scientists found out, guess what? There are subatomic particles around the atom, that make up the atom, excuse me. And this makes our world completely baffling. We go from the vastness to the absolutely indescribable smallness and order of God's creation. An atom is made up of particles known as protons, neutrons, and electrons. And if you took one of those subatomic particles and dropped it on an atom, so you take the subatomic and drop it on the atomic, that would be like dropping a penny on the moon. I don't get judgy here, but I don't know if we have any astronauts in the room, all right? So when I heard that illustration, I was like, I don't know what that means. I don't know how to compare that very well. I know it's big, but I don't know what that means. So I had to try to do some thinking, and this is not nearly as scientific as whoever wrote it, but I thought, okay, what do we relate to? And I thought, a soybean. We'll take a soybean, and we'll drop it on the continental United States and Canada. Where's Jim at? Is Jim here this morning? There he is. That'd be, far, that'd be hard to find, eh? That would. You drop a soy bean on the, on the continental United States and Canada, and that'd be about what it's like to drop a subatomic particle onto the atom. And these things, even with that, <laughs> that great distance that's microscopic, 
are being held together by something that the scientists cannot figure out. Einstein, in his theory of the cosmological constant, says this, the way the electromagnetic force and gravity work together to hold our universe together is so precise that it would be like asking someone to count, listen to this, to count every subatomic particle in the universe. Not just the atoms, but we are asking you to count every subatomic particle in the universe. And if you're off by one, if the balance is thrown off by one subatomic particle, the universe blows up. No pressure. Get out your phone and your calculator and start counting. God did all of this. God made all of this. And yet in the creation account, his focus is on the earth. His focus is on what scientists call the pale blue dot. Telescope flew out way, way, way away from the earth, taking pictures. And just for fun, they turned it around and they said, let's, let's look back and let's take a picture of earth. If you're having a hard time seeing it, here you go, I'll help you out. There it is. That's us, folks. That pale blue dot is the world in which we live. And according to God's perfect plan, and according to God's great glory, even when he spoke the universe into existence, all of its vastness and all of its greatness, even when he spoke the subatomic particles into existence in a way that man would not discover for millennia to come, God did it all with a creative focus that was on us. Let's read that text again that we find in the Gospel of John, chapter 1. Gospel of John, chapter 1 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And he was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through him. And without him was not anything made that was made. And in him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Let's keep going. Jump ahead just a couple verses. It says in verse 10, he was in the world. The one who made the world was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who do receive him, who believe in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God. The creator of the world became the savior of the world. According to God's plan, according to God's glory, and for our everlasting good, Again, we saw it over and over in this text today. It was good, it was good, it was good. Listen, it's not just because it was perfect. It's not just because God stepped back and said, man, look at this huge universe I made. That is good. No, his description of it is good is focused on the earth because he is forming it and he is filling it and he is preparing it for his image bearers. For his image bearers. For the ones who he would make uniquely 
in his image. More to come on that tomorrow. This is God's creative focus. I want to end today by asking the question again, what do we learn from creation? What do we learn from the creation? The creation account is not just to entertain us. It's not to give us all the scientific answers that we might want. You don't find the size of the universe. You don't find the subatomic particles in Genesis chapter 1 and 2. Why? Because God is revealing himself. He's revealing what he cares about. He's revealing what he is focused on. And what we find is God is infinite in power and majesty. What we learn from creation is that God is infinite in his power and majesty. Again, Psalm 19, verse 1. The heavens declare the glory of God. The sky above proclaims his handiwork. The universe is God's calling card. God is infinite in power and majesty. God's creation has order and purpose. From the galactic to the microscopic, we see the order of God's creative work. And we learn that God's creation focuses on mankind. Do you see that this morning? God's creative focus centers on the earth and the image bearers that he would fill it with? Why? Why? Why would he do that? We are so small. We're so insignificant in comparison to the size of the universe. Bigger doesn't mean better, does it? And we're not the first people to ask that question. The psalmist himself writes these words in Psalm 8. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You've set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouths of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at the heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man? What is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You've put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the fields and the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea and whatever passes along the paths of the sea. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Why did the heavenly creator why did the God of the universe set his love and creative focus on you? Because he is majestic and glorious and worthy of praise. And that is how we should see it. His eternal glory is why he has done what he has done. This is what we learn about our God. He has no peers. He is the creator. He is the lawgiver. Creation reflects his power, his beauty, his majesty, his order, and man's true nature as the apex of his creation does not make us proud or arrogant. Our understanding of being his image bearers and the recipients of his grace means that we are accountable to him as our created God. And that is an amazingly wonderful place to be, but is also a sobering place to be. We can be so thankful for, for very familiar texts like John 3.16 that tells us, For God so loved the world, that pale blue dot, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. What a wonderful place to be. But what a sobering, humbling place to be. 
The infinite God set his infinite love on his creatures and he invites them back into relationship with himself at the countless cost of his very own son. And if you are here today and like me, you've come to the realization of your sinfulness and there's been a day and there's been a time when you placed your faith and trust in Christ alone and the creator of the world became the savior of your soul. Oh, how you should rejoice. But if you've never done that, if you've never received that precious gift, the creator of everything, is calling out to you today and saying, know me, love me, be in relationship with me. You are small and I am great, but I love you for my glory and I invite you back to myself even at the cost of my son. Don't you dare turn away. Don't reject that gift. Receive it today and if you already have it, oh, celebrate it. Rejoice in it. I love America. I love the 4th of July, but I am so, so much more happy to be a citizen of heaven. That's a kingdom that is eternal. That's a king who doesn't go up for election every four years. How have you responded to creation? How are you responding to creation? God is the subject of the creation narrative. He is creating, sustaining, He is sovereign. And this demands a response from us. First of all, we should marvel. We should marvel. Go watch Indescribable. Go watch How Great Is Our God and marvel at the greatness of our Creator. And be thankful. Be thankful. Pride will lead us to self-congratulation and to self-depreciation. We'll either be too high on ourselves or too hard on ourselves. But the Bible gives us a perspective that helps us to see, us, see ourselves as the uniquely loved, created, uh, uniquely loved creation that we are in God's sight. Be thankful for that. And then I also encourage you with this. Trust the creator of the universe. Trust the creator of the universe. As I end here this morning, I just want to ask you to think for a second. If you know Christ as your Savior right now, what is the greatest struggle that you might be facing today? What is your greatest fear? What is your greatest anxiety? Is it a relationship? Is it an illness? Is it a sickness? Is it a financial problem? Is it a situation at work or, or in your living situation? Look, I'm not going to minimize it. I'm not going to look at you today and say, oh, it's nothing. Forget about it. That would not help you, and it doesn't work. We know that. I will not minimize the struggle or the stress or what you are going through, but what I would love to do for you, according to this text, is maximize the God who loves you and who made you for his glory. Because that helps. Remembering that the creator of the universe is the God who sees and hears your needs and your prayers should help. Isaiah the prophet in chapter 40, verse 25 said this, To whom then will you compare me? This is God speaking through the prophet. To whom then will you compare me that I should be like him, says the Holy One? Lift up your eyes on high and see who has created these things. Who brings out their hosts by number, calling them all by name? 
By the greatness of his might, not one of them is, and because of his strong power, not one of them is missing. Why do you say, O Jacob, why do you speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, my right is disregarded by my God? Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord, the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth, he does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint, and to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youth shall faint and be weary. Young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. The creator of everything cares about you. The creator of everything cares about you. As we move into the scripture in action time, you have some notes there at the bottom. I consider, uh, I challenge you to consider, am I resting in the care of my creator? By the way, your stress level is a good indication of that, okay? Uh, Your stress level will tell you what you're trusting in. I also encourage you to read Isaiah 40. You've got some time. Read Isaiah 40. Sit with your spouse. Sit with your kids later if you want to, or just to yourself. I actually want to encourage you, read it out loud or listen to it. Read it out loud or listen to it, but let those words uh, go into your mind and your heart. Watch Indescribable or How Great Is Our God. You might have to make a mental note of that. Maybe you won't get the opportunity to do that this week, I understand, Uh, but I really think you'll enjoy it. And then I encourage you to write down three difficult things that you are facing and pray about them today. Give them over to the Lord, give them to the creator, and trust your gracious creator today.